Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Hello to you. Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast, another episode. I'm Jay Hall, and I am here with a returning friend to the room who actually accepted the invitation, Miss Amy Allison. How are you doing? I'm good. Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History. We, you know, me and you, we just be so black. I would listen to our old episode. We was like, good to be black. That's hey, how we started we gotta, off. We had a <laughs> for sure. It's good to be black because there are some people running around this country who are trying to say something else and we're not going to let that noise in. So today, as every day, it's good to be black. It is definitely good to be black. And um, I've been taking that every step of the way ever since our last conversation. And you know, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you when you came on. How, how has everything been? It's good. I think the last time we talked was around the 2022 midterms. And I thought 2023 was going to be a relatively quiet year. You know, for someone like me who works in politics, it's cyclical. It's like a roller coaster. So this is supposed to be a year of planning and strategizing and resting. And it's not turning out to be that way. It's actually a very critical year for us. Like my, my whole reason, I'm convinced my reason for being born is to build political power for black and brown women. And this is a really critical year for that. So um, in all the ways that uh, the midterm elections were important, this year's even more so. So we're doing a lot of defense, but also some offense in terms of building power. So I'm, I'm actually working just as hard, <laughs> just working just as hard. <laughs> That's good. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I wanted to, if we could just refresh and go back for a second on you and your come up because you're from Oakland, California. And we was talking off mic and I didn't know that you were from Ohio first, right? Before you moved? Yeah. What part of yeah. Ohio? I, if you know Ohio, you know. Um, it's central Ohio. Used to be farmland uh, by Ohio Wesleyan in this little town called Delaware, where they used to have this annual kind of like village festival called the Little Brown Jug. <laughs> it's about like 45 minutes from Columbus. And my dad was doing his postdoc. As far as we know, he's the first black man to get his PhD in plant pathology, which is the, the study of diseases on trees and plants. And that's where he got his, his postdoc. And so uh, first few years of my life, we were there. No, I'm familiar. I, I don't know if I spoke about this last time. I'm originally from Detroit. So I'm from Michigan. And my one of my, my right hand man, he's from Columbus. I actually visited there um, throughout college when him and I was in college together. So I'm familiar with that area and everything that it has. And so your family, do you remember or you recall why the migration to Oakland, California? Was it because it gets really cold in Ohio? <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm a little older than you. I remember we left, I remember the blizzard of 1976. It was like, it went down in history. Uh, I remember that we were out of power for a couple of weeks. I remember at Christmas that we, uh, we made our way to a neighbor's and we, you know, they had a gas oven and they you know, light the gas oven and you keep the oven open. And that's how, uh, cause we didn't have that. And it was, and I, I remember the small 
area. Everyone's watching out for each other's kids. I, I remember what that was like. Uh, I also remember um, going to church all day. <laughs> all day. It was a very <laughs> kind of like, uh, it's interesting because o- Oakland of 2023 is a place where um, in the sense of it's a it's free thinkers, creative people, uh, people who imagine the world differently, et cetera. That's not really my upbringing. My upbringing was you say hello. Uh, Grown ups are sir or ma'am. So some people talk about the South that way. And I'm not from the South, but the Midwest has its, had its, especially in the, the central part, in the very rural part of uh, Ohio, had this it was like very uh, strict rules about behavior and um, about how we interact with each other, but also. Um, high expectations about how we care for our neighbors. And we don't have that in Oakland. You know, you go to big cities and I don't know how Detroit was, but like, like we, like people will walk by each other and not speak. And it's something that it's the one thing about living in Oakland. I wish we could, you know, have different. Um, Cause I miss that sense of responsibility for your, your neighbors um, and the people, even if you don't know them, because I think that makes your life better. No, it does. And I try in my life to not generalize. It's like a personal struggle that I have. But when you speak about that, that is so true. Like speaking to someone like on on my area where I was from, if you didn't speak to somebody, that was a problem. And then I moved East Coast and everybody was walking past everybody and not speaking to each other. You know, it was like a regular thing. It was almost rude to speak to someone. And that was something I had to get adjusted to because to what you're saying, it was Miss Jones, it was Mr. Jones, it was all of that and everything. And that was that was my upbringing. And it didn't matter what class you were in, that was kind of how you conducted yourself. And I didn't necessarily understand that until I moved to a place that did not have that. What was something else that you noticed at a very young age when you moved to Oakland? Because if I'm not mistaken, you're there at the prime of the Black Panthers. You know, we talked about what was lost going from kind of the small community to Oakland. Um, You know, my dad, when he finished his postdoc, he got a job in San Francisco and um, they sold their house uh, in Ohio and could only afford to live in this little town, uh, Antioch. And I remember uh, being out in Antioch. Antioch was a place that uh, while the Black Panthers were getting organized, Antioch was had these uh, community regulations, and I'm sure a lot of states had them, that kept neighborhoods segregated. And so we moved to this town called Antioch, um, which was 99% white, um, that the, the federal rulings had forced communities like this to uh, not discriminate against people of color. But it was not fun for me to go to a place like that and be kind of like the pioneer because uh, my mom is white and my dad is black. So in those days, that kind of family also, there was not, not, not very common there. And then to be one of very few black people in school was very difficult. By the time I moved to, I went off to college and I, I moved to Oakland I moved to Oakland in the 90s. The Oakland was a very interesting place because you have the Black Panthers who had been 
organizing in the 70s, that that organizing became a focus of, as we, a lot of us know, very intense police and FBI activity to suppress the movement uh, that they represented. But it didn't go away. Um, I came to Oakland at a time that was the peak of black middle class. There were a lot of doctors, there were business owners, there were artists. It was a vibrant, vibrant place. And it wasn't a black city. It was a multiracial city. There was no majority anybody there. Um, and I had, uh, you know, I think from moving the East Coast to that little white small town that was closer to Sacramento to, to Oakland, I think the thing I found that I'd was basically looking for my entire life and sort of is that feeling of belonging. And, you know, you, you feel belonging when you're in a small town and people recognize you like that. You go into a place and they call your name or even if they don't know your name, they say, you know, how's that dog of yours? Or, you know, is your mama doing okay? And that feeling of being recognized, seen and belonging. Um, I felt it as a young kid in Ohio. And then I felt it again in a different way um, in, in Oakland. And I will say that black people in, in, in Oakland, just like the great migration came from specific places. The first house, uh, my husband and I bought was in East Oakland and the next door neighbors, Mr. And Mrs. Johnson came from Monroe, Louisiana. There were only three cities that people came on the train to Oakland. And that was one of them. And they brought out their hand truck, you know, and they helped us unpack and they brought over warm Budweiser. <laughs> just, they just made us feel welcome. It felt more like not just the Southern, but that community welcome. And as black people had organized politically, we'd also brought this kind of community feeling that I, I really loved and helped me to feel like I had a real home. Anyway, thanks for letting me think about that. You know, that's part of why I love this city. No, that's excellent because I, I wanted to ask you for your memory. When do you recall your first memory of political awareness? Like when you was like, oh, wow, like politics or anything of, under that tree. Funny you would ask me that because I, I've been writing a lot and thinking about it's so hard for a lot of us because we're black to separate a political consciousness from our identity because just who we are means that we have to be aware of stuff that people who aren't black are not aware of. And we have a history. We can try to ignore it, but it's really carried within our, literally our flesh and bones, our DNA, it's carried down. So, uh, and then the things that we deal with day to day. Um, so I was thinking back to a very early memory. I don't think at age four, I had any language around politics, but there was a I, I really remember sitting in the living room, going through my parents' books. I had a lot of like coffee table books. And there was this book called uh, Alistair Cook's America. And um, it was a coffee table book. This is like a coffee table book that um, had a lot of like beautiful pictures. And this guy's a British guy. He was enamored of America and he had all these pictures. One was like this field of golden waving wheat. One was like a beautiful skyline, a New York skyline. Um, one photo I remember was like peering over the edge of the Grand Canyon. And then I turned the photo and it was that really shocking photo of a lynching. It was that lynching in Marion, Indiana from 1931. I was only four, but I'll I will never forget looking at this 
violence. There was boys, you know, there were just boys murdered. They had tattered clothes. Their heads were hanging down. And all of this mob of white people, men, women, boys, and girls with these various expressions. And I do remember that moment of learning about myself. My dad's family literally looked like the victims. My mom's family literally looked like those people. Even like there were people with peg laterals and fair skin and dark hair. But this image very early on taught me something, which is that about my own identity. And in reflection, all these years later, I think about the twisted family tree that we're in, that I'm my twisted family tree, the fact that this this horrible, horrific violence, and this became a touchstone for me, you know, many years later, um, starting in high school, and then in college, going back to that photo, reading about what happened, reading about how lynching was used as a way um, to control, to frighten, to prevent us from having not only our humanity, our dignity, but from our power. And the way that this kind of mob violence was was unchecked, you know, and it did form the basis of who I have become anti, uh, you know what I mean? A person who works against violence, a person who works to build the political power of marginalized people, a person who um, came to understand like, what were the things that people in Indiana in 1930s, what were their, what was their life like, you know? Um, and what did they want? They were organizing the NAACP. They wanted the right to vote. They had the right a you know, few, few decades before during Reconstruction, a brief period after uh, slavery was over and it was taken from them. And I started studying about how it is that we uh, create a different reality in which we are not victimized by these this terrible, terrible type of crime. And I learned about this amazing woman who uh, who was the head of the NAACP at that, in that little town named Flossie Bailey. And she was a doctor's wife. And she was a person, people would come to her house for these meetings. She was trying to get organized people. And they were kind of scared because of the way that um, the white supremacists and violence, you know, had, you know, target them if they start organizing. But she kept trying, you know, she'd heard uh, these, these kids were being accused of some crime. She got in touch with the the National Office of NAACP. She sent out warnings. She did everything she could to both protect people and um, and try to get justice after those boys were murdered. She organized white and black seroptimist clubs in NAACP. She spoke to and lobbied in front of the the. Uh, state legislature and the governor. And I'm saying all this to say that picture that taught me so much about this country and myself wasn't the entire picture. The other part of the picture was this amazing woman who was able to get, she could not, she did not have a protected right to vote. And she, even though she was, would n- never had the chance to be elected, she should have been governor of that state or senator of that state. She worked tirelessly at a time when it was very dangerous to do so, to push to for to protect black people from this kind of violence. And without someone like Flossie Bailey, the civil rights movements that happened in the 40s and the 60s and later on would have never happened. And so that's the basis of my politics. I look for 
black women and I look for other women of color who don't, who aren't afraid, who do what they can and they do not stop. And I will just say that the end of that story was last, um, the last day of Women's History Month last year, I was at the VP Harris's residence. She's on observatory. So I had worked really hard to support Kamala Harris being on the ticket, getting people out to vote in 2020. So we're here at her house after the pandemic. So, you know, I was here with like, I was there with like a hundred women leaders outside and she got up on that dais. And that day she was the deciding vote in the Senate to finally, after 200 attempts, pass the Emmett Till anti-flinching legislation. She did that. And I I feel like crying when I'm telling you this because that's our fault. This is, do you know how many great people, let me just talk about black women, risk everything to protect our communities. And I witnessed legislation being done in 2022 by our first black, first woman of color, uh, woman vice president who was the deciding vote in the Senate. Our political power matters. And that is what I've dedicated my life to. First of all, thank you for that story, because I was unaware of Flossie Bailey. I, so now when I get off this, I'm about to go do my research and everything like that. And I love hearing that. And when you tell that story, I relate to it because I think there's a path that we all remember a time where we kind of, re- especially black people, we remember like what the mirror looked like, like that moment of like, oh man, I'm black and this means something, you know, and we all have those differences and you found a hero in that, in, in that darkness. I mean, that's just something I'm envious of it in a good way, you know, like I, I and you kind of giving me like an antidote, like for anybody younger, if I have kids later on, like, you know, provide a hero like after that, you know, like under that, under that screen, like there's somebody who fought for this act that happened, you know, we didn't just lay down. And so I thank you for that. Cause that's truly, truly, truly a gift that you just gave me. And so I really, really thank you for that. And, you know, with you having that and that understanding, and I'm pretty confident as you were growing, you kept learning, learning, learning more about it. What was your first AKA like job or political action that you did? Um, I, I ran for office in my high school. That all white high school. <laughs> I became a national speech. And that ninety nine percent. Yes. Uh, I was. Uh, I was in speech and debate for you know young people getting to forensics, and uh, I had I competed in a category called student congress, and so uh, I was at the national level. So I was very good at this. We we would be like student. We'd have a, a bill, and we would uh, sit in a room with thirty other students. We would argue about it. Some people got to be, um, you know, have the gavel, and that's an, its own role. People had to vote for you. I mean, I was very, very good at that, and I was at the national level. And I also ran for student body president of Antioch High School. And um, I remember standing in front, and I'm the same. I basically, I'm the same person. I am now that I was then. I was a lot, like obviously younger, but as a 17 year old, I stood up in front and I said, hello, my name is Amy Allison. So ah, we know who you are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we need to stand up for ourselves. At that time, we had a dress code. We couldn't wear shorts. And I said, and we'll stop the injustice, you know, <laughs> you know, and I, uh, I got elected student body president. And uh, I think those things helped prepare me to make the case, like not perfectly every time, but like make the case. And I thought as a high school senior that I was going to be the first black woman secretary of state. 
that's what I wanted to do. Of course, uh, Condoleezza Rice beat me and there's lots to say about that. But like, I thought that's what I was going to do. And I joined the military and I uh, had a recruiter on campus. I had gotten an admission into Stanford. I joined the military thinking, you know, my parents couldn't really help me pay uh, for college. In fact, they said, if you choose that expensive college instead of going to a state school, you're on your own. And I said, I don't need you. I could do, you know, whatever. And the recruiter's like, oh, we got a great solution for you, Amy. This is good. What do you want to do with your life? I said, well, I want to be a doctor. Great. You should sign up to be a combat medic. That's great practice. <laughs> and here, you can sign an eight-year contract, and we'll give you a bonus of $2,500. And that sounded like so much money at the time. So I, sure enough, I enlisted in the reserves, the Army Reserves, and I went off to boot camp. And I wouldn't didn't realize then, because it would seem strange that I would be attracted to this kind of, but I was always a person who wanted to serve. I wanted to serve. And I, I thought this was just another way. Um, and the military ended up, um, teaching me a bunch of things. It was my first time in the South Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where I went to boot camp, and I was 17 and I was there with women as old as 35 and most like my unit of 200 women was half black women and mostly from the South. And I just told you I was from this white environment and had never been to the South. And I got to hear people's pain, their hopes, their dreams, why they were there. And um, as a very young, still a girl, that made a really lasting impression on me. But I also got to see all of us um, in this, you know, in the military, we, we were looking for something. We were looking for education. We were looking for a job. We were looking for a way out of our situation. We were looking for freedom. You know, we were looking to, to, to serve, but like, uh, it's hard to find it in that institution. And in some ways, training to be a soldier furthered my political education because I realized that as a person who was brought to consciousness very young by an, an act of, of violence, mob violence, being in the military was also there were terrible violence happening. And I was trying in that time in my life, and I was in the military for six years, trying to figure out what that meant for me. And so those were, you know, I made the very unusual step when my unit was, you know, I was assigned to the Palo Alto VA, I was taking care of veterans. And most of those veterans were both Korean, from Korean War, from the Vietnam War, from Falklands, from, you know, and a lot of them, like I couldn't wear my BDUs, which are, uh, I couldn't wear my regular uniform. Um, a lot of them had what, what we understand now as PTSD or moral injury for the things that they'd seen or they were told to do. They were damaged. They were, and they were left without... <laughs> They were abandoned, largely. They would come into the VA. They had been living on the street. People had cold, um, hey, people had, uh, you know, sores on their body. They had, you know, uh, they were poor. It was just terrible the way that this country treated people. They asked everything from. And um, that also was part of my political education. So I uh, ended up. As my as I grew as a person, as I was going to college and learning about 
the civil rights movement, the power of nonviolence, the, that just my own identity was evolving, mm-hmm. that there was a moment where I could not both, you know, just follow orders in the same way and be the person I knew I needed to be. And um, ultimately applied for an honorable discharge as a conscientious objector. And I, I never knew any black women that were conscious objectors. I thought conscious objectors were people who got drafted. I didn't realize that every military member has that as a right. It's, it's the most difficult discharge to get. It took me two years, but I got it. So I will just tell you, I'm the only person who made, who that you'll probably ever meet <laughs> that got on my DD-214, this person is opposed to war in every in all forms, and we have recognized that at the mil- as a military, and I've been honorably discharged as that. So that was also part of it. It's all part of it for me. No, this is like so wonderful. I mean, thank you for sharing it because I want people to understand your journey and how we get to that. So you have this unique experience and this connection that you're making with the violence from the witnessing the picture as a young girl. And then joining the military, and that's an experience. You come out of the military, you accomplish something that very few in the military do. So now you, I'm assuming, you step into the real world and you have all this going on with it. What's the action then? Do you say, I'm going into politics or I'm about to go work at CBS, got to eat a break? <laughs> I think um, part of my calling was not just to go through the very difficult, arduous process of getting a, of applying and fighting for a discharge as a conscience objector. After uh, I left the military, I felt I owed the next generation some witness. I want to bear witness. So I spoke out publicly about war. And I was joined by a handful of people that were in the military that did that. And you can imagine, I mean, it was very frightening after you go through training that we're taught you have no voice and what you say does not matter. You're not paid to think, you're paid to follow orders. And if that's drilled in as a very young person, it was a big deal for me to speak about and to bear witness about a system of war and what it does to people and how joining the military may not be the option as a, as a, as a young woman that you are presented. And I took that, I co-wrote a book called Army of None. I uh, traveled to 30 communities, meeting with uh, a lot of young women, mostly girls of color, Black, Latino, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, who were looking for education, who wanted a job, they wanted freedom, they wanted to serve, and they were being presented as a military as the only way. And I wanted people to know they had much more choice, that it was an expression of liberation for them to figure out what else they could do with their life. And you know, a lot of adults will say, well, it's good to have discipline. It is good to have discipline. The discipline of uh, growing a garden or an artist or discipline of writing, those are all kinds of disciplines that we can practice as a young person that get us there. So I started working with young people. I became a teacher um, and I I did that during my 20s. And um, it wasn't until my 30s and 40s that I started working in electoral politics because working with kids directly and helping give them choice and just more information, working with their parents, helping them get more choice and information. That was amazing. But for me, I realized we needed to find the Flossie Baileys in our communities and start building power around them. 
people we trust, people who have good values who can act on our behalf. And so I decided that I was going to start finding the heroes and supporting the heroes uh, to be in elected office. And honestly, that's what I do now. A lot of people um, learned about my career because they they said, Amy, I, you were the first person to tell me about Stacey Abrams. You know, um, I had friends that had moved uh, from Oakland to Atlanta, you know, and they were like, oh, a black woman's never going to be elected. Maybe, maybe. But they, they were like, I was like, you, you have to understand Stacey Abrams. You have to understand who she is. She's a hero in our midst. And guess what? There's a thousand Stacey Abrams. <laughs> and our, 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 my mission is to help identify them, identify what is the, you know, how do we move in this system that was in this uh, political system was never built for us. How do we build power? And it isn't just, hey, go out and vote. That's a very small portion of the power that we built. It is a lot of things. It's how uh, money moves. It's how what, what we think about in terms of what is normal and standard. Like who, who does a leader look like? What are, what are the issues? What's winning look like? Anyway, I, I just, that's where I felt like this part of my career, being able to figure out how we can actually have power enough to win elections. And if we can't win, we will change the landscape. And if we can't change the landscape, we will live to fight another day. <laughs> you know, because there are amazing, amazing black women leaders who never got a chance to be fully on the ballot. You know, they ran in a primary that brought new voters but that they had millions of dollars of attack ads and they never got a chance. And I, I'm checking for them because it's not over for you. And, you know, I feel like in my fifties, I can say that you can, you, we need you. But I always say, thank you for your service. The country needs you. And let's figure out how we're going to pick ourselves back up and go into the fight. And that's my career now. So you working with organizations, you got this awareness and you're doing it. How does she, the people happen? How do you say to yourself, I'm, I, I'm going to start my own organization with other people? How does that come up? I was uh, uh, working with, it was actually a college friend of mine, a guy, Steve Phillips, uh, that I'd met at Stanford. And Steve had this idea to start a, a, a PAC uh, that would support black and brown progressive candidates. I was all for it. He, you know, I started, we started working together and telling a new story about the possibilities. We supported Cory Booker and Kamala Harris for her Senate race and others. And the, um, it was based on the assumption that we actually, people of color and a, and a slice of progressive white people form, uh, the majority of voters. And we're, we have enough political power to elect senators and presidents. And it was evidenced by the election of Obama. And Steve himself had been an ardent supporter of Barack Obama during his presidential primary, the first time he ran. And we wanted to take that and apply it. So I had done that for many years. And we were making an argument that was antithetical to the way that the so-called experts thought about power in politics. Um, there were a lot of things said, you know, Black people don't vote, for example. If if we look at black people by analyzing the black vote, it's the black vote and it's mostly male. That's the way. If we analyze women's vote, it's mostly white. It's white women we're talking about. So there was ways that the politics, both the the data 
the stories that were told, biased people about which candidates were electable and which, which issues were winning issues. And so I knew that there was in all of this, just like with that picture, just like that picture, there's, there's something missing from this. If you say women's vote and you're talking about white women, well, what about the rest of us? And you started digging in there and like, there wasn't a, a deep understanding from Democrats that black women, since we've had the right to vote since 1965, have every single election year been the highest turnout group of people. We practice democracy and believe in democracy and are upholding and it's a political party. We are doing this. And um, I started telling that story. You know, we had in 2017, when I was working uh, president of Democracy in Color, this organization with Steve Phillips, uh, Trump was in office. And remember, Trump was tapping all these Republicans to be on his cabinet. And one of those guys was a senator in Alabama. And then there's uh, Doug Jones was running in a special election to replace him. And Doug Jones, kind of moderate, middling white guy Democrat in a state that had not won Democrat, a Democrat had not won statewide in 25 years. But our organization funded an independent expenditure, which is not coordinated with any campaign, run by this completely brilliant strategist named Duana Thompson, who was from Alabama, black woman. She activated black women networks and they won that election. And it was the first time Democrats at DNC that were like, oh, hashtag thank black women. I realized there was a story that was limiting our political power and our ability to be recognized as a power block, to be uh, supported in primaries. We were being taken out in primaries. Listen, I see it's happening even to today in California. So I will talk about that. But like black women, despite the fact that we vote and we are very, very strong Democrats, the strongest Democrats, we don't get that kind of institutional support. Anyway, all of this was happening. And I was like, there's a way by making women of color visible as a voting block, we can begin to turn the tide and to change that power dynamic from not being recognized at all in 2016 to having Kamala Harris in the White House, from being dismissed in the primaries to getting Democratic institutional support from the, some of the campaigns and early donors um, for, for 20, 2020 and 2022, and a recognition of the power of the organizers and um, uh, the importance of having, you know, really good candidates um, running in places like the Senate. Those those things are, are, are evolving, they're changing. I, I think if we understand how power moves, we can understand. And that's why I started She the People and all that, because I'm like, we're we're telling a different story. We're pointing out this data. We're highlighting the power of our organizing and our leadership vision. And we're showing that we may not win every time, exposing the problems with the system that was set up, but also showing the way that we can move uh, in order to have more power uh, over our communities, our own destinies. So that's where she, the people came from, you know, we're five years now, (laughs) we're still, we're still building. There's still, there's still more things to do. No, that's a significant change. Cause I remember that election in Alabama. My, I have family who's down there. So I visit Northern Alabama around the Tennessee Valley a lot. And I remember the hashtag think black women. And, and I think even from you and I, our last conversation, black women have always been saving this country, especially since they've been voting. You know, it was interesting to, for you all to get that thank you then. 
for as if you just woke up and you showed up at that moment when the stats show that black women have been showing up since the moment they were out to vote. Like elections have been saved because of, of black women. When you look at the present time, now California, you all are in a state primary. And I didn't know this. I was doing my research because, you know, to all of us who live outside of California, it feel like California is having an election every three months sometimes. You know, if you're not recalling the governor, there's like a primary. It, it seems like California is always in voting season, at least from my eye. Please, if you could, kind of let us know the importance of what's happening in the primary and why this one is something that nationally we all should be paying attention to. Um, I Let me just, I just want to say something about California because there's, um, in terms of women of color, there that's the most people in California are women of color. We're majority people of color state. There are more black people in our state than Mississippi. It's just, we're a huge state. We're a huge state. Um, and, you know, I was talking about, you know, California politics where the dynamic is extremely diverse. Black women are still a power block in our state. Why am I saying all this? Well, we've had two senators that were women. We had a campaign to get when, you know, to get the governor when there was an opening to appoint a black woman. And we did our best, but we did not win that fight. Now, Diane Feinstein, who is one of the longest serving senators, and she's infirm. A lot of people say she's got, you know, uh, Alzheimer's. She's still in office. She's not stepping down. She hasn't indicated she was stepping down. And so um, people have been waiting for her to do that. And she hasn't. And a lot of us wish she had stepped aside so that we would have an opportunity to appoint a black woman to, to the, the Senate. But she is not going to do that. And we have no black women in the Senate. You remember Carol Mosley Braun out of uh, Illinois was the first uh, elected in 1992. That whole machinery, the Chicago machinery that ended up electing Barack Obama, that that elected her as a one-term senator. She was the first one. The second, California sent Kamala Harris. And that's it. There have been no others. There is no black woman in the Senate. We lost two very important races. Um, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina ran uh, last year for Senate, didn't make it. So the California Senate primary is critical. Here are the dynamics. You have um, two Southern California Congress members, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, who does the little whiteboard things, right? Their earlier career. And then you have uh, Barbara Lee, who um, I'm not sure when you're <laughs> when you're going to be publishing her podcast, but she's going to be announcing this month. Barbara Lee is the most senior black woman. She's the most senior woman of color in Congress. Um, she is uh, the person who came onto the national stage really as a the sole vote against unchecked presidential power um, in 2001. Very, very, very brave. Um, again, you know, when, when Bush was, was uh, you know, using 9-11 as an excuse to attack Afghanistan, she took that vote. Everyone else did not. She was, and her vote of principle took incredible courage and she was ultimately proved right. So, and she's also a leader in all these issues. Anyway, she uh, comes from Oakland. 
She was a Black Panther organizer. She got pulled into politics by the great Shirley Chisholm, the first woman, to, modern woman to run for president, a uh, Black woman uh, ran for president. And she has never had uh, a challenge, a significant challenge here in, in Oakland, Berkeley. So she's been my congresswoman for over 20 years. She's going to run in this primary. California needs Barbara Lee. The country needs Barbara Lee in the Senate. Black women need Barbara Lee. Everyone <laughs> needs Barbara Lee in that Senate. But here's the dynamics. She hasn't officially announced. The other two Congress members have already announced. And Nancy Pelosi, who's just recently the former Speaker of the House, who would not be sitting, she would not be Speaker without the power of the Black women vote and women of color vote, had the nerve to endorse Adam Schiff, a white dude, a week ago and said he should be in the Senate. So you have a situation where you have a white woman who has incredible power and influence using her power to make the Senate less diverse and to try to cut off one of the most respected, most important modern American leaders, Barbara Lee, before she even announces. Why do we, why should we care about this? Because I have now lived through many, many instances of mainstream Democrats using the machine to cut us off of our leadership path to try to say, okay, if she endorses this other guy, the donors should not um, invest in in uh, Barbara Lee or the, the voters should dismiss her and things like that. That's the machine putting a thumb on the scale on behalf of this white guy. And this is the problem with American politics, but that's not the end of the story. So anyone who's hearing this has to understand if we're, there was a reason there's no black women in the Senate right now. And this is the reason. It happened in Maryland in 2014. Donna Brazil, she was running in the primary and the then head, the Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, put his power of endorsement, his control and influence as a, a very powerful office holder for the white guy. Maryland's the fourth blackest state. And Donna, like you have this really amazing progressive leader who never was able to make another primary. So she should have been our, you know, she should have been the next black woman. So I've seen this multiple times play out. And I saw it in Tennessee. Marquita Bradshaw ran in 2020. And Tennessee has been a Republican dominated statewide for a long time. They ran uh, the Democrats, put all their force behind a white guy who was running in the primary against Marquita Bradshaw, who was a nurse, who was an environmental organizer. And she beat him and he had over $10 million. So she didn't have a lot of money. And the Democrats turned their back and did not back her. I'm just saying I could get, I could talk all day, but there is a structural reason there isn't black women in the Senate and California sent a, a black woman, Kamala Harris. We can send her again. There are two Southern California Congress people who have to pay $10 million each in this expensive race just for everybody to know their name, where uh, Barbara Lee is our only Northern California one. We have a path to victory and people who um, who don't live in California have to understand this possibility that we actually can make this happen because California did it before and we can do it again. No matter what Pelosi says, no matter what the rich people donors say, that she is highly respected. California um, is a progressive state. She has kept pace with who we are. Bernie Sanders won California. I mean, people to understand who we are as a state and what we can do 
um, to, to, to support black women's leadership there is particularly this black woman. So that's what's happening in California. I had read that in the past two Senate elections, there's only been Democrats on the November ballot in California. And with Nancy Pelosi, um, with her supporting Adam Schiff, also read that Elizabeth Warren is supporting Katie Porter, right? When you have someone who has a track record like Barbara Lee, what is it about the Democrat Party when we have this, it feels like we have this conversation again, where you see Black women support, Black women show up in large numbers. What is it about the organization itself that is reluctant to support, hell, like a, a proven veteran, not just someone who come out the blue, but a proven veteran? It seemed like it would be, even if you don't feel that way in your heart, it feels like it would be like a win-win. What is the reluctancy when it comes to it? Uh, I think, I think um, like our heart of hearts, we understand that the system that now white women uh, like Senator Warren have successfully worked through and have power in, but the system itself keeps black women out lots of different ways. So I think we have to just acknowledge it. We stop being surprised. The system wasn't built for us. We've had access to it for not even 60 years. Flossie Bailey didn't have access to it. We, we have not had the ability to even vote just 60 years. And the Senate is like arguably the Senate and the presidency, the two hardest bodies to actually win in. And I think that's where we we have to acknowledge uh, racism and the combination of racism and sexism that comes into play. And it's not just who gets money. It's the buzz around who's electable. Oh, this person is is too progressive or all of a sudden they're saying, you know, uh, they use there's all kinds of language that to be used. You know, Barbara Lee's too old. Are, are, you're kidding, right? Compared to a lot of the senators, she is extremely young and she's very vibrant. Well, the one that's in now, the one that's in now, is 89, right? She's the oldest. She's the oldest, like right now, right? And McConnell, McConnell's the old guy. They're all so the the thing is, it's we let us not be surprised by the shifting standards to keep us out of an institution that wields so much power. We need to understand. Like we have this uh, thing at She the People that is a graphic of the ecosystem of power. Where does power reside? Because politics is a place where it's not obvious to everyday people. You know, how do you people get on the ballot? It's not even obvious. And it starts very early. It starts with um, consultants who work for state parties giving you the blessing or saying you should you should stand aside. It starts with donors who are political donors deciding who their favorite is and giving money so that person can hire staff. It starts with relationships with reporters. Because the reporters have a belief, hmm, that person can't win. Or, They're just difficult. Something about them just makes me feel uncomfortable. And the media is largely white guys. And they're, and they're the ones who are saying to the public, you know, what to think about politics. It's the fact that um, a lot of uh, black women candidates, in order to be successful, have to go beyond the, the pool of voters that year after year are communicated with. These are the five out of five people who vote all the time, tends to be older and whiter population. But if they have a chance, they've got to, they've got to reach out and organize and register and turn out to vote diverse sets of voters and younger voters. And for a candidate to have to do that on top of running a straight campaign, 
It's a lot. It costs a lot of money. That's what Stacey Abrams had. That's what she had to both. She has to both like uh, bake the cake, frost the cake, serve the cake, clean up the plate, wash the dishes. It's too much for one candidate in one campaign. And that's just some of the things. We're also like culturally, who should, what should a leader look like and sound like? What should their body look like? How should they dress? What about their hair? We have these biases against black women and against women of color, but it's particularly against black women. And all those areas we need to start talking about openly. So we're not surprised that the system is keeping us out. We're not surprised by the sitting sitting senators because it was a lie from the beginning that there was such a thing as a women's vote. It was a lie. <laughs> women's vote, white women are largely Republican. And the ones who are Democrats, very few have used their influence and power to uplift black women's leadership. And that is a fact that Democrats are going to have a problem with white women in 2024. That That is my big prediction. So to understand how white women who are office holders now are working against or, you know, kind of stopping our ability to move does not surprise me. So let us stop. Let's get from surprise and shock and awe and start moving with power. And all those different areas have a strategy so that we can build our own stories, our, uh, build more of a permanent way to engage voters, fight to get on state legislatures so they can't prevent our votes from being counted, have our own validations about which people are electable and who's worthy. And that is so much of my work. It doesn't sound like political work when I say I argue for who's worthy, but I do. In the last two weeks, I've been talking to reporters. They're like, well, you know, Barbara Lee, that's not a serious candidate, right? In what way? Let me tell you all the ways of Barbara Lee, former Black Panther, <laughs> is the, that the country needs her so badly right now and has a path to victory in the state of California. Let me tell you. And there needs to be a lot of us creating that space so that we ourselves understand our own power. We are worthy. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't get it every time, but damn, I'm not... <laughs> I still believe. No, what, what you're saying, no, what, what you're saying is, is, is a real thing. I mean, if there's anything, you know, to bring this to a head, when you speak about her resume, you brought the cake example. Thank you for that. Number one, it made me hungry because I'm fasting. Um, <laughs> number two, I think about my grandmothers and my aunts and the black women that raised me. And I think about how they made that cake and they did do everything. They did bake the cake, put the frosting and everything on it. And I was just telling a friend not too long ago that part of the problem on our end as black men, we're so used to black women being amazing. We don't even see it as amazing. Like we don't necessarily recognize the resume for what it should be anymore. Cause anybody who worked with the black Panthers from a certain era to now and it's still standing is nothing short of amazement. When you say that and you know the history and you know what happened to a lot of them, that's nothing but amazing to be a representative of this country. But unfortunately, it's almost like, hey, this happens, they'll be all right. So my final question to ask you is those of us that are not California residents, and if you could, not just with California, but when we see other states and it's not the big election. It's not voting for president and anything like that. What is it that we can do to elevate these voices, these black voices or women of color voices? What is it that we can do to assist? Like, what is it that 
myself, Jay Hall can do, or Tom can do over there and Jessica can do over here in Chicago? What is it that we all collectively can do? Here's a power that uh, black people have. We have cultural power. We have cultural power. So you're doing it. You're using your platform to invite a conversation about the possibility of, you know, for someone like me, who's a conscious objector, I have an unusual path. And, and now I can support a, a great leader like Barbara Lee. You've provided that platform. And I thank you very much for that. And I think cultural power is around leaning deeply into and taking ownership of how much we have, how much influence we have on the way that Americans think about themselves the way they talk about them. So all you have to do is go to TikTok and see they're in, they're literally using our voice as a soundtrack to try to express emotions. They're literally using our face. And this is a deep historical thing, but we don't have to be victims of it. We can harness that um, when it comes to politics. You think about like um, Barack Obama and Believe. Remember that? The whole, the whole thing about around him was created in large part by black people who culturally took created a, a mystique around him and made him even more attractive because you know um, as a person he's nerdy you know he's like intellectual it's not that he's going but he but he's um you know black people surrounded him with that sense of like your, your cultural power and that's what we need now and that's what a lot of a lot of us have access to. Um, in, in our own social media and other ways. And then, you know, I would, I would say no matter where you live, there's something you can do locally to make sure that people vote and that their votes are counted. Like I said, voting is not everything, but we can't really win without us leveraging that power. And we're going to see in 2024, the battle for the White House, for example, if Biden and Harris are going to be reelected, is going to go through the Midwest. We were talking about Ohio. It's going to be in Ohio. It's going to be in Minnesota, in Michigan. It'll also be in places like Texas, in Georgia, in Florida, in North Carolina, and then in the Southwest, in places like Arizona. And so if you live in those places, know that you live in the front lines of the battle for democracy and that my argument is don't just vote for a political party or don't vote because the system of democracy, as flaws as it is, the people who have kept the democratic faith since Phyllis Wheatley was a former enslaved person who was in Boston, in Philadelphia, at the same time that Jefferson, the slaver, was signed in the Declaration of Independence, and she herself still articulated that the the beauty she believed in democracy in that has not yet come to be. All of us have a profound, and I feel like God-given, right and responsibility to do what we can as an expression of our own dignity, power, and humanity. So figure that out. Get, you know, get make sure you're registered in that. If you live in Wisconsin, they're trying to take your name off the rolls. Make sure you get back on the voting rolls. Um, make sure your friends and family do. Like, Be the influencers that we are with the people in our world. And that's more influential than I, and, and more powerful, something they can't really stop. It's really hard for them to stop that, that small, um, powerful influence. And that's where to start, you know? And if anyone's hearing this conversation is like, you know what? I feel called to serve. That's where you get in touch with She the People because we back and we help black and brown women 
Latina, Asian American, Indigenous women, and Black women who want to serve, particularly in the federal level, figure out their path and get connected to a national group of those of us who are dedicated to this. And um, I encourage people, if you're called to public service, don't let it just lie there. You know, figure out what's behind that, because that's another thing that people can do. Thank you so much, Amy. If you could, before you go, let us know exactly how we can help She the People and what can we expect? She the People is shethepeople.org. And we're also um, on Instagram at She the People. And I think the most immediate thing right now is the the tables being set for the California Senate race. And that's really, really a big focus. Very shortly, we'll start turning our attention to where women of color, who are the majority of, certainly majority of Democrats almost everywhere, but the majority of voters or the, like a significant portion of voters, where we need to start working with people, activating people in the states that I mentioned, as well as other Southern and uh, Southwest states. So you can expect She the People to be backing leaders and to be speaking to our base with the idea we got power on our minds because we don't just exercise power. We see a lot of the abuse of power right now, like Governor DeSantis in Florida. He's abusing power by by taking great thinkers off of, you know, approved books for public school like Bell Hooks, who had a book all about love. Like we are about activating a group of people in this country based on values. It's not just like vote. You got to do it for what? You know, based on love of your own and others, you know, and to creating a country in which everyone belongs and in service to multiracial democracy. So people who have those values in common can come in and join our movement um, because it's very powerful and we're just getting started. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you returned. You know, as usual, I like to tell you that the door is still open. If you want to come back again, also please get in contact with us because we want to continue not only this conversation, but a conversation of action. So thank you for returning in the lightness. I definitely feel like my blackness has been elevated. I, I hope yours has. And <laughs> <laughs> <In> that <Yes. laughs> still good to be black out here, you know. So thank you very much, Amy Allison. This has been a, another episode of History Being Black podcast. Make sure you follow us on the History Being Black IG for the latest episodes. Make sure you check all of them. I try to name as many as I can. There's Apple, there's Spotify. But you can always hit me up on my social media at Jayhaw Society. Amy Allison, we thank you. Be blessful and successful. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You're the best. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.